0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston. On this show, I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode, I talk to composer, violinist, guitarist, and vocalist Rebecca Bruton. Rebecca's music explores a wide range of musical territory, from free improvisation to fully notated chamber music to cowboy songs. Her musical thinking is constantly evolving as she makes a habit of following her ears towards fresh influences and inspirations. Currently based in Alberta, I caught up with Rebecca in Toronto after a concert of her recent works. The Rocky Mountains make their voices heard, coming up on Northern Static. Thanks for tuning in the show. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choosing as examples of what they do, Think of it as a group listening session where the creator of the music is there to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. Rebecca Bruton's music defies easy categorization, as she synthesizes sounds and ideas from folk music, experimental music, ecology, cultural theory, and her own experiences in nature into utterly singular listening experiences. Her body of musical work is perhaps best understood in relation to her relentless curiosity about the sounds and people she encounters, This curiosity and openness to new musical ideas was on full display in our wide-ranging conversation. As we always do here at Northern Static, I'll start things off with a bit of Rebecca's music to set the table for our discussion. Here's a piece called What Are They Doing in Heaven from her album We Are the Kingdom, We Are the Desert. Rebecca Bruton, composer, violinist, mountain resident. Welcome to Northern Static.
1: Hi, Pete. I'm here in Toronto. It's a rainy day in January. I brought only my minus 35 parka because last time I was in Toronto in January, it was minus 25. And that in Toronto is way colder than that in Alberta, where I live. And I'm really wishing that I had brought a rain jacket with me instead.
0: Is that because it's a dry cold out there?
1: Uh, so they say.
0: Well, that's a nice way of saying uh, and me letting you know that you're the first out-of-town guest
1: that's, on, on the show. That's an honor.
0: Every, everybody else actually lives in Toronto. It's weird to think of you as an out-of-town guest because you did live here for a long time. That's how we know each other. But welcome to Toronto.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We met, I don't know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago when we were both doing time at York University. And uh, we played a little bit of music together while you were still in town, but then you left Toronto seven or eight years ago now and have been living in Alberta. Yep. And um, among other things, uh, you did a master's degree in Simon Fraser, is that correct? correct?
1: Yeah, Master of Fine Arts.
0: And you're here now, you happen to be in Toronto, um, we had a nice little concert of your music, which was a real treat. I was very fortunate to be involved in that. So I wanted to take the opportunity while you're here to ask you about that music and all the other music you've been doing over the years. So I'm curious about when you started composing your own music and what was it that got you excited to start writing your own thing?
1: Well, I think that was the aim for a long time, even when I was a kid. Um, I had been playing violin, was obsessed with the violin since I was about five, and I had gone to York University. I had been studying violin. I went there because I sort of came of age or became musically conscious um, shortly before the big Montreal explosion of chamber pop in the early to mid-2000s, and That got me really excited because I was a violin player and I felt like there were really interesting things that I could do with a violin all of a sudden that I I knew that I wasn't cut out to be an orchestra player or a fiddle player and I didn't really know what else there was in between that but knew that I loved being in bands. I just really loved playing and I loved performing and I loved creating. Generally, I was also really into visual arts before I went to york and so i went there to study jazz violin and the aim behind that was that i saw a lot of violinists in indie bands and other wide spectrum kinds of music making who i felt were not actually doing things that were that interesting on the instrument um there was a big uh a theme of a lot of long, slow tones that I saw, and violinists being used kind of as token instruments to fill out a sound. And so I had this idea of myself as a violinist who would offer something different and be really good at improvising. So I made the perhaps ill-informed and impulsive decision to go and study jazz music at York University so that I could become a really good improvising contemporary violinist. Um, That was also informed because I had been considering going to art school and to study sculpture. And I think I was better at visual arts than I was at music. Uh, But then when I went to the art school and was doing the tours, I got super depressed at uh, just some of the stats around you go to art school and then most art school graduates never have a gallery show again. And I didn't really see, I mean, as a 16 year old touring universities, you don't really know anything. Um, and being a really emotional person, I had sort of this gut level reaction to touring Alberta college of art and design that then of course informed the rest of my life choices and this path, very odd path that I've been down since then of, feeling like I couldn't understand where the community connections were in the art world, and I didn't really see what happened beyond making the thing. Whereas in music, even at that time, I felt really well-connected. One of the themes that I often talk about is uh, the person that babysat me when I was a little kid. His name is Chris Dadge, and he runs something called Bug Incision, which is a concert series as well as a record label, And he had been this constant in my life as I grew up and he was always sort of giving me things to listen to, talking to me about music, treating me not as this super young kid, um, but talking to me as a peer. And so having him around and starting to go to the kinds of shows he was running when I was like 14, 15 and seeing him do all this super weird stuff was definitely a big impact on feeling like music had to do with people and had to do with creating spaces for people to gather in. And another thing that was a really big part of my life was all ages shows. There is a very strong um, all ages punk scene in Calgary that was often combined with other kinds of activist activities like food not bombs and cycling activism, punk bicycle mechanic initiatives, All these things sort of collided around punk shows and I think seeing the DIY approach happening there and getting to know people in the community and feeling like I had a purpose, even as a young teenager, I felt way more purposeful going to all ages shows, putting on shows, playing in shows than I felt in any other area of my life that then I felt like if I went and studied music, which was also partly a way of getting out of Calgary, which I, I knew that I didn't want to stay there, or at the time, um, in 2006, it didn't seem like a place where I could stay and keep doing music. So I wanted to get out of Calgary, and a good way of doing that when you're 17 is to go to school. So I had this idea of music being connected with people and already seeing myself as being part of this local music network that I continue to feel this sense of music is really about connecting with people and I continue to put on shows and be really interested in the distribution of music and I work as an administrator so I'm constantly meeting people and connecting people And so right back in the day, that was something that I was drawn to and that gave me meaning in my life. But all that to say, composing, I went to York, studied violin. I had a lot of doubts around being a violinist throughout my time at York, or at least being professionally a violinist. And... I, at a certain point, felt like I just didn't want to play anymore. It really hurt my body. I had an injury, a strain injury, and I would feel a lot of senses of despair and hopelessness when I thought about, like, why am I practicing? What is the purpose of it? I also think this is a lot of problems with pedagogy in music school that we don't learn about music in culture and what music can do and why we're doing it. We don't really talk about that. So then you have a bunch of 18 year olds who are just learning how to shred by themselves in practice rooms. And I don't think that produces very creative thinkers or artists. And I also think to some degree, well, maybe music school isn't the place you should, anybody should go. Um, But then now I'm also, I'm reconnecting with pedagogy through learning about guitar. And I'm really loving some of these pedagogical tools around just learning a craft really well but I think as an 18 year old I had a burning desire to be an artist and to be a musician but then when I was going to music school every day I felt like I don't know what the point of this is so in my fourth year I ended up doing a honors thesis that was on ecological philosophy which I continue to be very interested in And that was really the start of thinking, oh, there might be another way of engaging with being a musician that involves me creating work. And then a couple years out of music school, I was still sort of had this idea of maybe I could be a violinist, maybe. And I was hired to be the violinist in a touring opera production that was touring by bicycle through, it was the first year of the... Bicycle Opera, Bike Opera, which continues to run in Toronto. And I was also, through Pete Johnston, actually, through you, I had gotten a job on this landscaping company that a lot of Toronto artists go through. That's
0: right. Guest of the pod, Martin Arnold.
1: (laughs) Um, And so I got this job and I had this plan to tour with this bicycle opera And I met Martin Arnold. I had known who Martin Arnold was generally because I had seen him around for years. And I also knew that he had some involvement with the Rat Drifting record label, which was something that Chris Dadge had introduced me to. So I, I had some awareness of this. And so I started getting to know Martin. And then I was trying to shred on violin after coming home from a day of gardening. And then rehearsals started. And I ended up getting fired from the opera right before it went on tour because I just couldn't, I just didn't have those skills. And I remember the night that I got fired from that, I was at the gardener's party and I got this phone call and I went in and I was really shaken, but I was also so relieved because I hated doing it and I just hated being expected to play the violin in that way. Just purely having the technical skills to carry out this in this situation, it just didn't feel good, and I had been wanting to bail on the project. But
2: my and were sense, they doing like
0: a classic opera or? Uh, or I think it was a, a Juliet a,
1: Palmer opera. It oh, like was just a, so like a contemporary thing. Yeah, it was a contemporary thing, and just I think just playing the violin in a setting where I don't have an I. I don't think it's a bad thing. Now I compose for violinists who do that. Um, But for me, it was a really difficult experience. And I don't like being in those situations. And uh, so I got fired and I came back out and then Martin was there. And Martin, I was so ashamed of myself, even though I was relieved. And Martin was just so supportive of me and was like, uh, probably said something degrading about opera because he hates opera. Um, but <laughs> I, he I can't imagine he was really just like, "Hey, Rebecca, like it's okay. I don't think you were enjoying that project, anyways." And they said it was a community oriented thing, but then they're firing you because you don't have the chops for it. And he just was so supportive of me, and so there was this emotional element of like, "Oh man, these people here are my friends." And I was trying really hard to do this other thing. But then I've got these friends who are gardeners and doing these maybe much weirder things. And they're giving me some real support here. And then throughout the rest of that summer, I really got to know Martin. And uh, he was, I think, a lot of the ways that he has of talking about music made a lot of sense to me. He also validated the fact that even though I had gotten a C minor in counterpoint and harmony, it didn't actually matter and it didn't say anything about whether I could actually be a creative musical thinker. So that sort of got me past some of the hang-ups I had around starting to compose and feeling like it was something I could do. And uh, I took some lessons with him and those were... Just taking even a single lesson with him, I think it's something everybody should do. And that opened up to me this idea that music making could be a lot wider than I had originally thought it was, even though I already had pretty wide ears because I had been like studying free improvisation and had been an improviser for years. There was something about his approach that um, widened it even further. So then I had this idea that same summer that I wanted to, I was super into the musician Washington Phillips, who's, uh, he put out these recordings in the 1920s. He was a preacher. I think in a lot of ways he was sort of an outsider musician. I like thinking, I think that we've sort of mythologized who he is now because these recordings have been around for so long and they're so strange. And I sort of like the idea of like, when I listen to it, it's very powerful music. He played this instrument that he sort of invented or he pieced together. It was a modified zither instrument that nobody can really identify totally what it is that he's playing. Hmm. Um, and, and he was a preacher and he sang these gospel songs, but they're very strange and they're a lot like parlor music. from. They're a lot like white parlor music from the late 1800s. But he was a black preacher, and uh, I'm super curious about where his musical influences were coming from, Um, because his music is such a strange confluence of these different things, and it's not like anything I've ever heard. And I kind of like the idea that maybe he was not super well-liked, and it was like he made these recordings sort of accidentally or by chance but he was just some guy I think he died in poverty he was living in like a men's social housing place but I like the idea of him like being kind of this outsider artist who's living in a shack somewhere and people are like oh like yeah that Washington guy like he's okay but don't go to his house apparently he was super rogue he would show up at church events and try to start preaching there but then get kicked out and I like imagining him as this super weird nerd who's inventing instruments in this shack in like <laughs> the early 1900s. And people are like, oh, don't go out there. He might get you in on this conversation about this thing he's building. and It'll be super weird and you'll want to get out of there really quick. And then he'll start talking about conspiracy, about the different denominations. Um, but anyways, he made this beautiful music. Um, and I really wanted to uh, engage with that in some way. Uh, so I ended up taking some lessons with Martin about composing, figuring out that I didn't, I realized after I took some lessons with Martin that I probably didn't really need any lessons at that point, that I just needed to listen to what I wanted to make and then map it out. So, so then I went and I made these transcriptions of a bunch of Washington Phillips pieces, and then I um, reworked them for an ensemble of... Two violins, a viola, and two trombones, and I made an. Al- I wrote a whole album. I also put some original songs on it, as well as a modulated version of "Go Lassie Go," the Scottish folk song. Um, and I got together Heather Sommer, Doug Tiali, Tony Wallace was on it, mm-hmm. and we recorded it with Justin Haynes, who was at that time staying at. D. Alex's apartment in the junction and it was like 35 degrees and we all crowded in and recorded this record in three hours with Justin sitting at the computer and swearing and being really frustrated and then he mixed it for me and I released it on tape and that was sort of the start. I was 23 um, when I released that. And that just felt like the thing that I wanted to do. So that was kind of the start of it. And then for the past seven, eight years, I've been developing that in various transformations. And I hope that I'm better at it now than I was then. But I still like that record.
0: So when you say developing that, like developing what, like the way you worked on that project, like what what about working with those older songs, have you been developing?
1: Um, I think a big part of it was really learning how to put an ensemble together and to make arrangements of things. And what was interesting to me about that piece is that Washington Phillips has such a unique, strange sound, and everything's all grainy because it's grainy and bendy um, because it's recorded on... I don't... Would it have been recorded onto wax, maybe, Maybe Some of those recordings are from 1918. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure what the exact technology was at that point. Um, And it's such a strange sound. And I was really interested in um, how can I put an ensemble together to emulate these sounds but make something that's totally different? And how can listening then in itself become a generative process? Um, And then I think also for a while... I've moved a lot over the past seven years between writing just for an ensemble and then creating an ensemble that I also perform in. And uh, I love songs and I love performing on voice. Oh, and I didn't play an instrument that I could easily sing with, so I felt like in order to have a performance practice as a singer and as a songwriter... I needed to find this other way into it. And I also had like a long-term irksomeness around singer-songwriter-ism and culture and the idea of just being, of learning guitar and then going and singing my songs on guitar. Um, the aesthetics of that didn't really appeal to me. So I was really trying to figure out what it is that, what do I have to offer in the world? What am I obsessed by and drawn towards? And what can I do? And that's another thing that I think is a Martin... Um, to some degree is coming from Martin um, and to some degree from other sources. One of the things Martin has said to me or that I've heard him say often is he doesn't, I used to struggle a lot with jealousy of other artists. So seeing other artists do something that I felt was more successful than what I could do. And I would share this with Martin and he said, well, why would you be jealous because you should feel relieved that if somebody else is doing that, you no longer have any responsibility to make that thing, um, <laughs> which I think is a really funny way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And so I now think of that as what are the limits of what I can do at any given time and how can I work within those limits rather than trying to think of like, what do I need to um And then balance the what can I do with what skills do I wish to acquire. Um, So what can I do at that time as a 23-year-old was, okay, I can't really sing and play. It's sort of uncomfortable for me to sing and play violin. The violin has a lot of baggage and hang-ups around it. But what can I do? I can transcribe really well and I can get better at transcribing. And I can make really unique things by transcribing and then creating a new thing out of that and I get a lot of satisfaction out of that, and I like working with other people. Like transcribing
0: older music, you mean?
1: Yeah, transcribing older music as well as transcribing sounds. Um, Just anything that I was listening to. A guitar player that I'm really interested in is Marisa Anderson. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's a primitive-style guitarist who I had seen perform by accident in the same year I met Martin, and I got her record The Golden Hour, and... That summer, I was also obsessively transcribing her guitar solos for violin, and then I would sing the melodies and play the melodies on violin at the same time, and I felt like that was a really good musicianship exercise, so pretty much anything that I felt really obsessed with and really like it, um, I had that relationship with music where it's sort of taking up a space where I don't feel hopeless about the world, which is maybe a negative obsession rather than a positive obsession. <laughs> um, and a theme is maybe escaping my senses of uh, despair and hopelessness of like capitalism, oh, we, we, global we, we warming, etc. <laughs> <laughs> grateful for it as
0: a, as a coping mechanism. It's uh, very generous. So thank
2: um,
1: you. Yeah. So listening, I feel is a coping mechanism for me with that And, uh, and then when I'm really compelled by that and feel like there's a, you know, a reason for living when I'm listening to a piece of music, then I usually want to, I'm immediately wanting to generate something from that. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah. Well, what is, I mean, what are some things you've heard that, um, that had that, that had that effect? Like do you have some examples of music that, that immediately struck you in that way. Like I want to, explore this more or make something that's like this?
1: Well, right now I'm really obsessed with a lot of guitar music um, and I've been studying guitar with Kurt Newman. But one of the guitar players of the last year that I've gotten really interested in is Bill Orcutt. He has Mm -hmm. a a record called A History of Everyone and I love this record so much. Um, And part of what I love about it is that he has all these strange his way of playing is super all over the place and noisy and, but very melodically based and often based in older, much older melodies.
0: Yeah. Like, like pre-war blues kind of yeah.
1: vibe. Um, but then he's creating something that is really not sounding pastiche at all. And then he has all these moments. So he, he has a lot of extra musical detritus or extra, his guitar makes a lot of noise that is not super clean And then he's also has these moments where he's humming just a little bit. And I really love the ways that the humming sort of tapers off. So it'll be his attack on guitar. And then there will be this super high pitched, strange, slightly out of tune hum that just sort of appears between these, the the attack and the decay and then the next attack. And I just love that. I love how it, feels like it's accidental. I think that he's aware that he's doing this, Um, but there's this sort of um, accidental sound of this suddenly beautiful, not very well-executed hum that I find totally gorgeous and like, oh my goodness, I want to make a piece that just has that feeling of the attack and the decay and that faltering, vulnerable hum that happens in between. So that's one thing. And then I've also had that I really love the singer um, Carla Bozjelich. And she has an incredible album that's covering the entire album of Willie Nelson's Red-Headed Stranger. Um, and I love her singing because she's more of an experimental singer, but she has really deep roots in country music and punk as well. And she has this really low voice. She's a master of, She's a master of a lot of things, but definitely a vocal master. I have this idea of wanting to hear Bill Orcutt's guitar music with Carla Bozulich's singing. And on the one hand, I want to curate them together somehow. (laughs) But then on the other hand, I'm learning guitar so that I can make that record myself because Mm -hmm. that's the music that I want to hear.
0: Yeah, because that's the other Martin Arnold thing, right? He always says, make the music that you want to hear. Like yeah. you want to exist in the world, find yeah. a way to do that. So, with that, what can you tell us about your um, your general creative process when you're when you're in a, in a writing mode and um, you've just come out of one writing some music for this concert that that we just did? What can you tell us about what you do in those in those periods?
1: Um. So I do. I'm pretty uh, verbal as a thinker and. I do a lot of writing, just handwriting about the kind of music that I want to hear. So I do a lot of, um, I call it auditioning, which is not totally an adequate word, but it's the auditory equivalent of imagining. So I do a lot of mapping out and describing exactly what it is that I want to hear, in journals. And that's usually the start of my process. I do a lot of listening and then a lot of critiquing of that listening, but that's usually pretty informal. And it, the listening leads directly to imagining a new thing that I want to hear. So I do that for a while and then I'll transition it through some kind of an improvisation practice, whether that's I'm most comfortable improvising with my voice these days so once i have a general idea of this sound world that i want to create for many years before i downloaded logic i just Mm -hmm. used my zoom multi-track function and i would just improvise a bunch of tracks into my zoom and i found that having that limit on things was really positive for me if i only have four tracks and and I find that the the more limits I have, the clearer I have to be about how I want to execute my idea before I actually execute it. So, that's also where all this writing about it beforehand comes in. And then at a certain point, like I,
0: making a punk record in the '80s, when they only yeah, had four-track cassette, pretty much, yeah, four-track composer, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So. And then I often do a lot of vocal improvising. Um, I have hours and hours of me just improvising on my voice. And I find if I set up a time duration like, say, um, 20 minutes and then lead that up to an hour, then over the course of that hour of just forcing myself to improvise for that long, then I end up landing on these things that I find very musically meaningful And then I'll start recording those things and refining them. And then I end up transcribing them. So that's been, that has been mostly what my practice looks like. And then once I have a vocal, um, a set of vocal recordings on four track, then I can start mapping that out for other instruments. So then I move between um, improvising and recording and then transcribing, and then setting up a system so that other instruments can come into this. Um, As in,
0: like, like, t- taking some of the parts that you sang and and imagining those on on a other like orchestrating them basically for for whatever. Uh,
1: yeah, orchestrating them, or like, I'll come up with a melody, and then I'll write that down and transcribe it, and then I'll and then that often will move it into a totally other place, like. How do I want the music to change, which is also a Martin question. And within the context of that imagined change, what are the other elements that can fill this out or interact with this thing in some way? So in the piece Three Gold Roses, which we'll talk more about later, I came up with this melody that I loved and felt attached to and committed to, And then I was writing for percussion and there was a question for me of how do I, um, what is it that will add to this and not detract from this if I add a new thing to this? Because sometimes you add things and they actually detract from the original thing that you had. And then in that case, it was imagining a really dense percussion part, which is not something that I ever would have improvised myself. So it moves between, I think, the the doing of the thing, and then the thinking about the thing and imagining the thing. So that's been that's been the basis of how I write for many years. But in the past year, I've been moving more into collaborative generative practices. So I do a lot of, um, including for this show, one of our pieces, Softly You Cowboy, I developed that through... I, I listened to a recording of the song... The Cowboy's Sweetheart by Patsy Montana, which mm-hmm. is like a vaudeville-style cowboy song, and and then I sang it from memory and recorded that, and then I created four different improvisations based off of that, and then I sent one or two of those to Laura Swanky,
0: vocalist Laura Swanky,
1: vocalist Laura Swanky, and then I asked her to listen to what. I had made and then only and then record herself singing along to it with the recording and microphones and then in the next exercise it was sing that from memory sing what you just sang from memory over the course of one minute and then do that again and then create an improvisation that lasts two minutes and then create another improvisation. So she did all of that, and then it ended up at something that had some essence or core of the original recording that I gave her. But it was also something totally different. and it was something very much that had a Laura ishness about it that I never would have come up with. And like
0: like her own personality came out through. yeah, her
1: own personality and her own pedagogical background and music culture background. And I really that's part of what I really love about working with improvisers is that, Someone like Laura has incredible technique, but she also has a very strong personality as a player, and she writes her own music as well. So then I'm interested in having her sing something that maybe she wouldn't come up with without that initiation of this thing that I sent her, but then it also totally sounds like Laura and sounds like it really belongs in her voice. So then I took the thing that she sent back to me and I transcribed it and then I built it up from there and I sort of analyzed what are these techniques that she's using, what are motifs that she seems to use. And then I built that into the final um, arrangement that I made. So it was a I I call it a directed collaborative process. I think that hmm. way of working is a lot closer to how a theater director works with an ensemble, mm-hmm. where you're really writing with the ensemble. Which um, you're providing
0: a pretty, a pretty good starting point of... Of music or ideas to to kick it going correct like it's you're not just saying sing me a country signing melody like you're providing Um, a fair amount to start chewing on
1: yeah and i call it the bass player dave Shokrun, who's a friend of mine from vancouver he used the phrase um specific without being prescriptive Mm. Um, and I find that's a really effective way of describing what I'm doing is that I, I do have a very specific idea of the sound that I want, but I'm not prescribing exactly how to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm just prescribing a situation that's going to ultimately result in that. But then the musician can move through it in their own, applying their own creativity to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I noticed too from the the final results from from the music that we played that you that you write the scores out by hand instead of using a notation program. Um, is that process to you part of the part of the composing process or part of the creative work, like doing it that way?
1: Um, part of that is... Uh, I think there's a, a really interesting neurophysical that connection that comes with physical writing um, in terms of writing words. And I've always been a big journaler and... I really love writing and, and the physical act of it is something that I find inspiring and feels really good. Um, I like working with physical materials and I don't like staring at a screen for too long and I find computers really frustrating to navigate. So it's sort of, a, if there's a way that I can keep this in a tactile object, then I'm really interested in doing that. Um, And there's also a creative element that's really satisfying of learning how to become a really good engraver and how to have my own style. I feel that I've developed a very specific aesthetic style within my scores, and it's just I feel compelled and excited about doing that in a way that I don't feel compelled and excited about doing that on the computer but one of the things again with the theme of limits is I think in a lot of ways it can be very inefficient to do things by hand so then I'm interested in writing music where the handwriting is a necessity of the music making itself and I do think there's some things that you can do by hand that are a lot harder to do on computer and it's a lot easier for me to execute like Even just writing a bunch of little cells of chord clusters is a lot easier and exciting for me to do using drafting tools and pen and ink and designing a really beautiful page than it is for me to be working in a notation program. So it just is more efficient for me, but I don't think it's necessarily more efficient as an objective uh, measure.
0: But I just like the idea that you are using technology... Like contemporary, like digital technology, but at an earlier stage of the process, like in the, in the improvising and recording, the improvising and 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 going back and transcribing stuff. So the technology is still in there, just not in the final product that gets pushed out. Which which is a, I really like that as a way of thinking about creating the music. Maybe now is the time we can listen to some music. We can. Uh, you mentioned uh, three gold roses, one of your pieces that I I love very much, and. Maybe we can set it up for us a little bit and uh, and we'll listen and then check back in on what we just heard.
1: Sounds like a great idea.
0: All right, so we'll hit it. <laughs> Here's three gold roses.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank okay. you. we yeah.
0: All right. That's three gold roses. Um, great to hear that piece again. Um, Rebecca, what can you tell us about it?
1: Um, so I think a lot of it is after finishing my MFA, I got a lot of opportunities to write chamber music. And I think um, after many years of totally self-directing all my projects, and doing a lot of composing, but never doing it with a big P professionalism attached to it. Um, it was a big shift for me to be working in the chamber music world, which is very professionalized, mm. and and so I, and then I also again have some like baggage around really good instrumentalists because I feel like I failed at doing that mm. and. <clears throat> So it was really intimidating to suddenly have these opportunities to write for people who are stellar instrumentalists and have spent their whole lives learning how to do that one thing so specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, athletes athletes, yeah, musical athletes. and and then I really feel like a hack because so much of my learning has been through, even though I went to music school twice, I did I mean, I went to York, which is basically a self-directed program. And then I did an MFA at. Simon Fraser and interdisciplinary work. I had barely any supervision through any of that. I've never taken formalized composition lessons. Um, So, so much of my learning has just been self learning and learning through listening. And so, of course, then when I get an opportunity to write for someone like, for a group like the Bozzinis or Continuum um, or Array, then it's quite intimidating. And in the first few pieces that I did in those kinds of settings, I really was uh, somewhat caught up in um, writing some degree of impressive music to show that I was that I actually belonged there. Mm. And I think with Three Gold Roses, which I wrote for Array, I think I was feeling a lot braver, and really something clicked for me around. There's no, it's writing music is hard but I think that it should be joyful and I think making a life decision around being a musician it's not it's not hard in the way that somebody working in like a restaurant or cleaning hotel rooms or being a manicure salon artist it's not hard in the way that that is hard But it is hard in that I work 40 hours a week and then I work about 30 hours a week on top of that, which really limits my ability to partake in other things that make a person happy, like having friendships. Um, I do have a lot of friendships, but my friendships are mostly through musical work in some way. And I find those to be very deep and meaningful friendships. And well,
0: as you said earlier, that's what drew you to music in, in, in large part to begin with versus visual art.
1: Correct, yeah. So friendship is very important to me. Um, but there's either, I find with being a musician, there's either that there's kind of this double bind of I'm going to work full-time and have some degree of financial stability but be exhausted and burnt out all the time because I don't have any time for anything else. Or I don't know what
0: you're talking
2: about.
1: <laughs> or I'm going to live in a degree of, fin- of chosen financial precarity. So if you're going to make that choice, I think that you shouldn't be miserable with the thing that you're making out of that choice. Um, and I think for a while I was writing all this chamber music and feeling like I, I kind of hate doing this and this isn't fun. And I'm stressed out all the time and I'm writing music that I like, but I don't like it as much as the music that I wrote when I did the Washington Phillips album, that felt somehow more aligned with who I am or more authentic in some way. So I think with Three Gold Roses, that was after six months that were very tough on a personal level. And I felt like there were other things going on on in my life as well as being really stressed out about music. And I felt like music shouldn't be another stressor on top of that and so it was the first chamber piece that I wrote where I was like this is really the music that I want to hear and this is really it's music that I listen to myself I listen to Three Gold Roses fairly frequently because I because I succeeded in writing music that I wanted to be around in the world so I chose that one because it has that quality for me of I would release it as an A-side of a tape, but then it's also being premiered or it was premiered in a professional chamber music setting. And I think that's also a key for me is, would I release this as an album or would I release it as a DIY tape? And can it exist in that world and be meaningful? And then I've never thought of this actually in quite this way, but I feel like there's a stamp of meaningfulness of would it be meaningful to me as a 15 year old girl? And, like and, any fifteen-year-old girl, or just <laughs> your, yourself as a fifteen-year-old. Me year as old? a fifteen-year-old, but okay. also I think there is value in like I think uh, so much of my so many of my teachers and and the musicians that have mentored me have been men, um, and I think there's something really subversive about writing not for my teachers' ears but for the ears of a teenage girls because I think teenage girls are um, some of the most potently underrecognized human beings on the planet for their creativity and their passion um, and their volatility. And so I do think a lot about like, would a teenage girl be able to hear this? But of course I was a pretty specific teenage girl. So I don't know how connected I would be to the majority of teenage girls. Um, But yeah, with Three Gold Roses, I feel like I would release it on an underground label and be really excited about doing that. But then it was able to exist in this other area that was better supported, say, and then be realized by really incredible musicians.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, how did you put the piece together? Like, what's the what was the generative process of it? Mm.
1: I had been writing a few pieces. I wrote this piece for the Bazzini Quartet called "All I Dreamt Twice as Much," and with "All I Dreamt," I had been really obsessed with the idea of. What's the smallest musical idea that I can distill something down to? And so, and then I was also reading a lot of tarot cards at the time that I wrote that. And I got really into the idea of a tarot card is a book, but it's a book with endless permutations and combinations. And I know I'm not the first composer to be dealing with tarot cards in some way or modular scores in some way. So with All I Dreamt, the string quartet, I had been working with these micro-musical ideas and then writing them all out on, uh, first it was large pieces of paper that could be rearranged however they wanted, and then also thinking about how does what comes after, if something comes at 15 minutes in the piece, how is it changed, how does it change slash is changed by what comes before it? So thinking about ideas of temporality and material, how to order things, and how can I make something where, depending on where a certain musical event shows up, it's meaning in the formal sense, not in the representative sense. When I say meaning, I'm usually talking about, or I'm pretty much always talking about, musical meaningfulness as opposed to discursive meaningness so I'm not representing another idea or at least I'm trying not to. So if something appears at one place, how is it changed if it instead appears at a different place and what are the smallest ideas that I can work with and then be arranging for the piece to still be musically successful and to be heard as music and not just as an essay about an idea, a concept that I had. So I had been working with that, and then in, in All I dreamt Twice as Much, the output of that piece was... There were a few cards at the beginning where it's these lines running up really high and really quickly, and the players are whistling as they run the lines up really highly and quickly. I use whistling a lot because I love the sound of whistling, and I love the sound of singing with an instrument. And then there was 10 to 15 minutes of these descending lines that were just these super small glissando events that would last for uh, between 5 and 15 seconds, I think is the longest. Um, They went on for a long time, and then the very ending event was a a tune, a melody, based on a recording I had of my grandfather's Swiss music box, which is a super complex music box that has this beautiful out-of-tune clunky vibe to it. I wanted to create the sense of that music box. And then I also wanted something really sentimental and really emotional that just comes in for a moment at the end of this super formal piece with these very abstract shapes happening so I had taken a lot of different versions of the song blue velvet because I find that song super emotionally affecting and but then it's also upbeat so I tend to be someone that gets caught in like the aesthetics of loss and desire and that can lead to a lot of heaviness fatigue and I also am somebody that has a lot of joy in the ways that i move through the world and a lot of humor and i'm drawn to music that's very funny as well or that seems funny to me so blue velvet it seems like it's pushing something to the extreme because it's almost a caricature of a sentimental feeling and then there's of course the david lynch association through the film blue velvet which totally takes that song in a really dark puts it in very dark settings so, again, we're still talking about this string quartet, but I will lead it. It's all context for Three Gold <laughs> Roses. Um, made this piece at the end of th- of All I Dreamt, modeled simultaneously after this music box with the feeling of Blue Velvet. <laughs> and you can hear a little... Um, the One of the melody lines which Clemens Merkel whistles is... Which is taken from Blue Velvet. So I had sort of reworked that melody and those chords into something totally different, but you can still re- hear it embedded in there. Um, and they were whistle, they were Hockett whistling. So it was a whistle and then a stroke on the violin whistle violin hocketing as an ensemble and then Clemens is playing who's the violin one he's playing the melody and he's whistling in unison with playing the violin that all happens for like two minutes at the end of this super austere formal almost sort of Buddhist in its uh, careful presentation of very small short repetitive events so, and then I wanted that whole piece to be shuffleable and modular. So coming out of that piece, which is also, I lied earlier, I do really love that piece and I really feel like that piece is mine and I have a certain ownership over it that I feel really proud of. I was writing Three Gold Roses and I think I wanted more of the strange blue velvet music box vibe to be written into three gold roses and less of the formalist uh, sound events. So with three gold roses, I almost inverted that. So the bulk of three gold roses is like very beautiful, almost uh, saccharine melodies and textures. And then there's these strange little moments where the ensemble, the percussion in the ensemble are playing construction paper with wood dowlings. And it's, totally a formal musical or a formal sound event. And those just pop up in a couple of small places. And then the rest of the piece is this like very saccharine, bright, lots of movement. Um, and then Three Gold Roses is also modular in that it's a lot of really small ideas, but the ideas are each a bit longer than they are in All I Dreamt Twice as Much. And then another thing that I think is a theme in my music is I'm sort of like, what are all the things that I just love and I'm totally obsessed about? And I just want them all to be together because they all make sense to me and have a kind of aesthetics together without being overly eclectic about it and without being too much of a kitchen sink performer. I'm really interested in how do we listen to like a super romantic ensemble section um, because there is this section in Three Gold Roses where the violin line is with a lot of vibrato, and I really love that, and I think it's wondrous when I get hear things like that, um, but then it's also wondrous to hear really small paper crinkling sounds, and I'm really excited about that. And then I'm interested in like how does that super romantic vibrato thing set up my ears to hear this super small paper crinkling sound as, because I think our ears, um, they do set up to listen to different kinds of music differently. So then how does placing these things alongside of one another change? How do we experience those things in different ways?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You're asking for different modes of listening from from the listener, bringing in different ways of thinking about how, to relate to different sounds, I guess.
1: Yeah. But then the challenge is, I don't want to be overly disorienting or overly eclectic. Mm. I still want it to really sound like one piece of music that all belongs together.
0: I hear what you're saying about eclectic music. I, I frequently have this conversation with my good friend Michael Smith around Frank Zappa. He grew up listening to a lot of Frank Zappa. And I, I often feel that if, if you didn't kind of hear Frank Zappa at a certain age in your life, you're kind of not going to get it, and I didn't hear it and and that and what I hear is this bunch of eclecticism going on mm. in there. There's just kind of everything, all this different stuff mashed in there, and I don't hear it as a whole. but I think that's the fault of my listening more than more than the, than that music itself, but anyway, I don't know once a year or so, I try. I didn't had Frank's that, but when I was growing up, I had Rush. So that was mm. that was that was my thing, which uh, which you know I guess is why I do love the Prague so much. Anyway, enough about me. Let's. Uh, well, I guess this will be slightly about me because we're going to listen to a uh, <laughs> uh, another piece from the recent uh, collection of works that you that you did that we performed. I had the good fortune of being on the ensemble to perform here in Toronto. Um, am I right about that?
1: Pete did have good fortune. <laughs>
0: I meant, am I right about this is the piece we're going to listen to?
1: This is the piece we're going to listen to. And it is? It is the turning larch.
0: And it is, you can hear my good fortune when you, when you hear this. The turning larch. Here we go. That was Turning Larch, live recording at the Canadian Music Centre, January 2020. What? Uh, why did you want us to listen more closely to this piece?
1: Um, so we were talking earlier about Three Gold Roses and how Three Gold Roses, I feel like, is, uh, I don't want to say it's exemplary, but I do. F- well, maybe exemplary is the right word that inter- I'm still, I think, very much in the early career bracket. But the past few years, I feel like I've really landed on a something that is worth doing. And which means that I don't have, I have 10 years of experience working more or less professionally in different ways. But I don't have a huge body of work behind me. I have a basically three to four years of sort of having appeared and been producing work in areas that I want to be producing works in and being recognized for that and growing that. Um, So in terms of when I say uh, what is work that I feel like best represents me, I feel like I'm moving closer to this thing that feels like it's uh, somehow the thing that I want to make. And maybe I will feel like that for the rest of my life. Well, yeah, I hope
0: you don't get there because then maybe you won't make anymore.
1: Yeah. And right. it could radically change. But there is this sense with Three Gold Roses where I was like, oh, yeah, that's it. And then I've been working for the past year, six months to a year on what I've been calling my country music project. That's a song based project. Um, and it really came out of a, uh, conversation. I've been wanting to put out a song-based record for a few years and I've self-recorded a few song-based records but I would really like to have a professionally recorded one that I get mixed better and that I put some real money into or that I have some funding for so that are just better resourced than what I've done so far so that I can make it a quality item comparable to the quality that I would put into a chamber music piece because now I have Mm. a standard of professionalism from working in chamber music that makes me really want to apply that same level of professionalism, not without fun and uh, friendship, but um, my standard has just changed. Um, And then I was also really interested in getting some outside feedback on my song-based work because that also I haven't... I've had a lot of feedback over the past few years on my, my chamber music work But I was really just wanting to do more. Uh, The song work is important to me in a different way than the chamber music. And so I got in touch with this producer I know. His name's Alan Farmalow. And he's based in New York. And he's done a fair bit of work with people that bridge boundaries between folk and pop music and some form of classical music. And I like to think that my music is not as easily defined as being avant pop or avant class or uh, neoclassical um, <laughs> when I work in song based realms. But I did think that I could get some really good feedback from him. So I paid him a few hundred dollars to give me a few sessions where he just listened to what I was making and gave me a, sort of a working plan around how to move that forward. And during one of our Skype sessions, he he made this comment that when I talk about Lucinda Williams, who's an Americana artist, my whole demeanor and my body language changes. And that's because I really love Lucinda Williams and I just believe in her music without complication. <laughs> I think some of it is a bit cheesy, but I find her songwriting gets to me in a way that no other music does. So so he sort of pointed out from... Not knowing me that well and not really knowing my communities, that there's a way that I'm relating to a certain kind of music making, a certain world of music making, that I'm maybe not relating to the kinds of music that I, the areas that I'm actually producing music in and gaining mm. some degree of recognition in. He also noticed that in my language, when I was writing to him, I have a lot of identity around being an experimental musician, which I do. Um, I really, I value experimentalism and I have for many years, but he pointed out, he's like, you're using this like it's a super fixed term and like you can't make music unless it is experimental in some way. So he came up with the suggestion of why don't you just try writing really straight country music for a while? Like listen to 60s and 70s records and just really emulate them. So before I started studying guitar, I had this project for a while where I was writing a country song a day. And what I would do is I would take... Um, I would take, <laughs> yeah, like Prince. It was called my Prince Project. Mm. Um, I would take a t- Tammy Wynette song, George Jones, uh, Kitty Wells, and I would just look at their forms and then I would rewrite the song exactly the same, with the exact same form, exact same changes, um, but a different set of words. And then I would really look also at what is it that they're saying, how is the narrative set up, and just write a new song. And it was a way of really um, deprecizing the craft of songwriting because I think songwriting Mm. is something that I really get caught up in it being meaningful and by that I mean the discursive sense of being Mm -hmm. meaningful. It has to be important in some way. It has to be good. Um, Like
0: emotionally generated. and
1: Yeah like authentic and true to my own experience and uh, so I get really stuck when I'm songwriting and I don't produce that many songs because of that whereas I produce a lot of Uh, composition because I'm not attached to it in quite that same way and so it was a really good opportunity to be like a song doesn't have to be good I just need to write one which we also talked about earlier with Mm -hmm. uh, I don't need it to be good I need it to be Tuesday (laughs) Um, so I needed it to be Tuesday with (laughs) songwriting Um, so I was just transcribing these songs uh, which are all super simple changes writing a lot of country songs none of which were very good but then what that got to is I suddenly was writing songs. After a few weeks of doing that, I was writing songs that were my songs. And it also freed up a lot of con- like I just don't have a, did not have a whole lot of confidence around songwriting, but feel feel compelled to do it and have confidence in writing in other areas. So it freed up this sort of confidence because suddenly I had like 15, 25, all of a sudden songs behind me, none of which were very good, but I had these songs written, which was really exciting. And then when I was in that super prolific stage, then it eventually led to just writing other kinds of songs that I felt more like were actually good. Um, And those have taken a bit longer to write. So The Turning Larch and this whole project that I did this show for is very much an outcome of this conversation I had with Alan um, just under a year ago of like work on just writing straight country music. And of course, what my output has been is not straight country music Mm -hmm. at all. But by going through that exercise, it was a way of getting closer to the music that I actually want to hear um, and music that I feel really good about making and doesn't make me miserable, and that I can go to at the end of my work day and feel really good about producing. So The Turning Larch, it started with the words I was reading. One of my favorite authors is a woman named Maggie Nelson. She has a book called Bluettes that is a beautiful book about longing, and the aesthetics of longing show up quite a bit in... My music, it's an aesthetic that I'm really drawn to. And I think that longing and loss are also flip sides of desire. And I think that Lucinda Williams is a master of desire in songwriting. Um, And it has kind of that desire as a feeling, but then there's an aesthetics that for me has to do with also obsession, like why I'm even obsessed with music in the first place. So I was reading Bluettes and it's a series of these short, super short essays on different forms of longing and different forms of blueness that appear hmm. in in different, uh, in like Joni Mitchell songs, but then also in some really early literature. And there's one essay that talks about this earliest piece of English or Anglo-Saxon writing called The Rude, and the essay is about how it's sort of a a contemplation on um, the act of dreaming and how there's some research that shows that we don't dream in color, and then the essay also talks about how film, the culture of film has probably influenced our dreaming quite a bit, and... The author, Maggie Nelson, laments on what would it be like to dream before we had film, before moving pictures, because she thinks that dreaming would be quite a bit different. And then she's contesting this idea that we don't dream in color with uh, pointing towards this text, The Rude, the earliest piece of written Anglo-Saxon text that is a Christian allegory. And it's this description of this fiery tree And it's so filled with color and a spectrum of color, but also the idea of goldness and the idea of something glowing. There's all these descriptions of it glowing and being so alive with color and all of this happening in a dream. And then Maggie Nelson goes on to talk about how could this text have existed if we didn't dream in color. And then she relates that again to the idea of longing Mm. in dreams and longing for color and longing for an intensity of experience. And it's super beautiful and moving. And I really liked the language that she was describing when she printed little sections of the rude. And then I really liked the language that she was using when she talked about the rude. And the rude simply means the pole.
0: Like R-U-D-E? Like?
1: R-O-O-D. R-O-O-D. Yeah. Um, it just refers to the pole. And then the language is really metaphorical. And in the rude, it just describes a tree that's aflame. And how sometimes it's um, glowing gold. Sometimes it's flowing in treasure. Sometimes it's flowing in blood. And I was so moved by reading this description that... And I didn't even know it was a Christian allegory at first. Like a burning bush
0: allegory? Yeah, uh,
1: it's an allegory of Jesus on the cross and Jesus Mm. bleeding on the cross. So I didn't know that about it because the description is just like super surreal tree um, that's burning and, and glowing. And so I loved this piece of text and I loved the wholeness of the language around it, which I often find in... I'm, I don't have any English education in like literature and English, so I don't have very good technical language around it. But I find in a lot of Renaissance and medieval poetry that I have read, there's what I can describe as a wholeness of language, where the language feels very physical and tactile. Mm. And I really found this in reading the Rude*, that there's sort of a tactility to the text that I was comparable to what I experience when I'm listening to music that I really love, where I feel like there's a physical presence somehow being engaged. Yeah. So there, I was thinking a lot about like sound as touch and words as touch and spoken words as touch versus what, what makes a piece of text really intimate when it's not being spoken um, and what makes it feel physical. So I got super excited about this text and then I was like, that text feels the way that I want my music to sound and the way that when I've been successful, such as in the final section of my string quartet, All I Dreamt, and in Three Gold Roses, I have this sense of it's glowing gold and it feels very whole. um, And there's this surreal joy to it mixed in with this ecstatic melancholy. And I really felt that way about the text. So I thought, why don't I take this text and write it into one of my country songs. So then I found a bunch of different translations of the text and I started deconstructing them and taking out different sentences. And I mixed that in with some of Maggie Nelson's text. So in the final lyric in my song, there's a phrase that's, um, I've heard it said that we do not dream in color. That is a sentence from that passage. And then as well as I have been tempted, those four words, those come from different parts of the passage, but I've t- stuck them together so that they take on a meaning specifically in the song. And then the rest of the song is is pretty much text from different translations of the rude. And then while this was happening... So I live in Banff and we have something really incredible called larch season and larches are these coniferous trees that live at the tops of mountains. So they're very much, um, they're the highest alpine tree that there is and they are pretty mystical seeming in that they're coniferous, but they turn gold and they lose all their needles. So in September and October, we have larch season and that's when all the larches turn gold and it's in a matter of weeks, suddenly the tops of mountains are flaming gold and you can do these hikes that are, they're called larch hikes, um, that are places where the larches are especially potent in their colors and abundant. So I was doing a number of these larch hikes and I was having these incredible experiences in September and October, you can still swim a lot of the time. It's super cold. But the experience of hiking up to uh, Alpine Lake in larch season, surrounded by these glowing trees, and then swimming in this super cold lake with your friends and then eating an amazing lunch afterwards is like my favorite, one of my favorite experiences in the world. Um and then I realized I wasn't thinking about this, but what I was describing when I was writing this song based on the rude was essentially the the experience of being in a lar- an area of the mountains when the larches are turning.
0: So it sounds like the, the larches you're describing are a literal manifestation of this metaphor that you're reading about. Is that do correct? I, do I follow you there?
1: Yeah. Pete, you follow me. Yeah. So that's where the lyrics came from. And then I really wanted it to be... At that point, I was starting to land on kind of the palette that I was working with for this project. And so I knew I really wanted to be playing electric guitar in it and have some chords that were sort of followed a kind of pop or more of a pop structure than a country structure but I think my voice is in a lot of ways coming from country traditions. So I do feel that there's like a, a folk or country aesthetic in the way that I sing, even when I'm using more pop style chords. So I came up with the the set of lyrics, worked them out on my Casio keyboard. And then that was when I had the idea that I really wanted Ryan driver to be playing synthesizer on it because I felt like his approach to his instrument as well as the way he sings would fit really well with the aesthetics of this song and I wanted to hear some really pure tones so then I thought oh well I should get someone who plays the saw and I was also writing in some very close intervals that I thought would sound amazing if they were synthesizer voices and saw all happening in unisons or like just off unisons so I had this idea for the texture that I wanted. So I started building out that texture and then I put it all together and then it was—it just feels like it's kind of the perfect song for that band that we played with where both Zoe Alexis Abrams, who's one of the singers, and Laura Swanky, who's another one, they both, in terms of their training, I think they both come from more or less a jazz training background, but they're both really good free improvisers, and they both work with electronics. So they both have really strong um, synth-pop sensibilities as well as free improvisation sensibilities. And then their voices are also quite unique at the same time. So I wanted to highlight their voices, highlight Ryan's very specific way of playing and singing. Pete was like the first person I wanted on this project right from the beginning. Um, So Pete playing bass and then my friend Alex Meeks playing saw and whistling, which I didn't know he could do at the time. And he also didn't know if he could do it, but I (laughs) sensed he would be the best person to carry this out.
0: There was some bass and whistling at the same time too, which uh, the bass player wasn't sure he could do either.
1: Um, But they all ended up being able to do it very well, or they at least learned how to do it, (laughs) Um, which also makes me really, really happy that I uh, I have them under my thumb.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. (laughs) With the musicianship challenges.
1: Yeah, it's good. So yeah, so I put all these things together and. And then I was just really starting to learn guitar. So I wrote all the chords on piano. And then over the past few weeks, I've been learning how to play them based off of my own score, which has also been a really pleasurable process because normally I don't play my own scores at all. And so I don't really know what it's like to play from one of these scores. And it was really nice to be like, oh, this is what it's like for a musician. Um, And I think that will make me better at communicating to musicians as well.
0: Right, you're seeing what, what you're giving to other people and and having to look at it in that way. Right. Interesting.
1: And I think why I wanted to include this song on the podcast is I feel like in some ways it's a lot simpler than what I would do in a chamber setting. But I also feel like it's when I was listening the other day to Three Gold Roses back to back with The Turning Larch. I think there are quite a few similarities, um, but I think it's realized slightly differently or with a different ensemble. And I feel there's a, f- a looseness to it that I wouldn't get with a chamber ensemble. So there's sort of a naturalism in the playing and the ways that it moves through it, um, that it just has more motion in it. That again, I don't, it's harder for me to write that kind of motion or sense of togetherness with a chamber ensemble and then there's this whole improv section that I feel like everyone is just so utterly themselves in it, but it still fits with the theme of the piece um, or with the aesthetics of the piece. And then it comes straight back to a different version of what was presented earlier. So there's a bit of a jet, like working with a jazz head in this piece, but way freer than most jazz music and then way freer than a lot of the chamber music that I write. So I, I chose that piece because I feel like it's exemplary of more of the work that I want to be doing and ways that I want to be working because working with ensembles that are people that I love and that I have, I love their music in terms of what they put out in the world. But it's also a really nice social situation to a lot of those people I've been friends with for many years or have had some kind of acquaintanceship with for many years And putting them all in a room together creates this really beautiful, joyful way of putting the music together that all feels very easeful. And then the output is one that also, to me, feels easy to listen to, even though it's not like maybe it's more straight ahead than some of the music that I've written, but it's still pretty weird music ultimately. So
0: it's not straight country.
1: It's not straight country.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a good spot to start wind it down here a little bit, I got a kind of standard question I like to ask to, um, to wind things down here, which is simply this. Is, is there some music that you would like to do that you've not yet been able to realize, either for financial or, or structural reasons? Like, given the ability to do whatever you like, what, what would it, what would it mm-hmm. occur to you to do?
1: That's a really good question. Thanks. Anytime. Yeah, well, I would really love to put out a record with this band and have that band that I had, which I believe I named all of the players earlier, Pete, Ryan, d Zoe, Laura, and me, really have the them be the core of the record, the core band. But then I really want to orchestrate it with a string section because I just love strings. And I think that there's a lot, the music has sort of a, a super sweet, super bright quality to it. And I think there's some, some dark twists that I could bring with uh, <laughs> string orchestration, but I think also string orchestration would really bring it into the realm of classic country records.
2: In um, mm, yeah, Nashville Sound.
1: Yeah, with the, the string orchestrations on that. And mm-hmm. I think, again, I'm really playing with some of these things like The Saw and is a super country or at least old time folk instrument, but then I'm dealing with it in really experimental ways, like having D'Alex listen in cl- or whistle in close seconds with it. And I feel like, in some ways, what I'm asking him to do is super, super traditional, and then in other ways, it's like totally weird and more sound based experimental music. So I'm really playing on these things, but I think working within the constraints of like what is a really classic Tammy Wynette album and how is that album put together formally, I think would be really interesting way of focusing this project and then orchestrating all the strings myself would just be a total dream project if I can get funding for it. And then the other one is that I'm, I just love playing the guitar and I want to get, Really good at playing the guitar, and I really want at some point to put out just a guitar and voice record that's like primitive style guitar playing, but in my own way. But I think I'm a few years away from that. Um, but I think that would be a really amazing thing to follow up this super heavily orchestrated album with like just Mm. voice and guitar. Um, I think would be a really beautiful ordering of how I release things. See, this is
0: why I love uh, asking that question, it gives so much to look forward to. Well, thanks so much for coming to toronto and thanks especially for including me in this project and uh just so thrilled that um that we get to actually talk in toronto because you've been on my list to talk to but i figured we're gonna have to do it over skype or something and i'd have to figure out how to do that and uh uh you know now i don't have to figure out how to do that we just we made it happen thanks a lot
1: thank you pete
0: that's the show good night (laughs) (laughs) thanks for tuning in everyone i hope you liked the show You can find out more about Rebecca and listen to her music on Bandcamp, on her website, and on her SoundCloud page. Links to these are in the show notes. If you like the show, please subscribe to get my very occasional episodes, and maybe rate and review it somewhere if you can spare the time. Also, if you can tell all your friends to have a listen, I would appreciate that too. Thanks to my decrepitude, I'm not on any social media, so I'm counting on all you hip people out there to spread the word. As usual, we're going to let our guest play us out. And here's the piece that Rebecca frequently referenced in our chat, All I Dreamt Twice as Much, which is performed here by the amazing Budzini Quartet. Until next time, thanks for listening.